I was sitting in my car in the middle of a busy intersection, and I had no idea what the hell just happened. Two cars were crashed and were spun around in the street. There was smoke, the smell of burning rubber, people were honking and screaming at me to move my fucking car. It was violent and horrible, and as I slowly started piecing it together, there was also no way around it. It was my fault. Oops. Hi, you don't know me, but my name is Jim Walker, and this is Record. It was the late 90s. I want to say 96, maybe 97. I can't quite remember. But I do know that I did not yet have a mobile phone. As a matter of fact, and forgive me for starting this off with a tangent, but I remember the day I got my first mobile phone. It was in the year 2000, and I'd picked the phone up in the morning on my way down to the airport to go down to San Francisco. I was flying down from Portland to see my friend Dave. I didn't think I'd use the phone much. I really only got it out of convenience, like if I had car trouble or something unforeseen happened. So I flew down to San Francisco, rented a car, and drove straight to where Dave worked so we could go have lunch. Before seeing him, I went down the hall to hit the head. I was standing there at the urinal, and suddenly there was this ringing noise. Having never had a phone before, it took me a moment to figure out that this was an incoming call. Then it took me another moment while I thought to myself, I think I may have just had my very last moment of complete freedom, because look what's happening here. I'm in the friggin' John. Jesus, now anyone can get a hold of me anywhere. Fuck this. And I've had and fetished my phone like everyone else ever since. But I'm sorry. Let's get out of this hole I've dug so early on and back to that swell car crash I was talking about. I've been living in Portland, Oregon for several years, but decided to take a week or so and a road trip down to L.A. on my own. I figured I'd see some friends, and though I didn't say this out loud to myself, I suppose I was trying to gauge whether I missed the place or not, if anything about it was drawing me back. I was staying with my pal John in his bungalow in Marina del Rey. Now, I've known John since we were little kids, Let me tell you how we met. It was the very first day of fourth grade, Mrs. Kestenbaum's class. She was giving us a general overview of what we'd be learning that year. She'd been talking for 15 minutes or so about spelling, pilgrims, sentence structure, long division, and like that, when a hand shot up. Mrs. Kestenbaum called on the boy who'd raised his hand. John Saul was this short, bespectacled fireplug of a kid with a completely deadpan expression on his face. He looked at Mrs. K and said, Do we have to carry a bunch of garbage home on the last day of school? He didn't laugh. His expression was curious and somewhat concerned. A few kids giggled and the teacher continued on. This is the first time I can ever remember something funny hitting me like a grenade. When he said that, I thought to myself, What is this kid's problem? Then I thought about how, even though it was the first day of school, this kid's priority was the last day of school and how much stuff he might have to carry home. It was the most ridiculous thing I'd ever heard in my life. I actually pictured him in my mind, sweating and breathing hard, sweltering under a pounding California sun, lugging a backpack chock full of papers, paintings, books, and clay ashtrays. I looked at the kid again. The teacher had moved on from his question, but he was still staring at her, waiting for an answer. That same expression planted on his face. Thinking about it now, decades later, I think it's brilliant. Not only did he say it, straight face to the teacher, but now, after knowing the guy for so long, I also know that he absolutely meant it. The long and the short of it was, 
I went into a laughing fit like I'd never had before. I was bright red, shaking violently, my jelly gut undulating where it spilled over onto the desk. I couldn't stop. I thought I was going to die. Mrs. Kestenbaum told me if I couldn't control myself, I'd have to go outside. Of course, that just made it funnier. I looked over at John. He glanced at me, and the smallest, most mischievous smile I've ever seen crossed his lips. That finished me. I fell onto the floor howling. Mrs. Kestenbaum sent me outside. I went out and stood on the short wall outside the classroom and slowly pulled myself together. But every time I thought of that kid's face, I'd start laughing again. I literally couldn't stop. It's been like that with me and him ever since. One of the things I like most about John is that ever since I met him, he's consistently had a staunch indifference to time. Time, as we all know it, really doesn't register on his radar. Let me give you an example, then I'll get back to the car crash. On one of my visits to see John, we were sitting in his bungalow, talking, laughing, having a great old time, when John walked outside. He was gone for a few minutes, so I went out into the common courtyard area looking for him. He was nowhere to be found. I walked out to Washington Boulevard and looked up and down. Nothing. So I went back inside and wrote in my journal for a while. Two hours later, John walked in, covered with sweat. Where were you? I said. I felt like going for a run, he said. He felt like going for a run. So he ran. He didn't tell me he was going. He just went. I like that. I like that very much. Once in a while, that aspect of his personality drives me nuts. Like, if you absolutely, positively need John to be somewhere at a particular time, he won't be. He can't. It's not part of him. Some mornings, staying at John's place, I'd wake up and he'd be gone. No note, no nothing. Rather than concern myself with this, I'd just go about my business too. It was one of these mornings that I got up, and John was gone, no note of course, that I decided I'd hit some people up I hadn't seen for a while. One of the people I wanted to see was my friend Rick Murata. Rick is a very well-known record producer, and he's played drums on a million songs you've heard on the radio since you were a little kid. Blue by You by Linda Ronstadt. I'm going back someday. Come what may to blue by you. Rick. Peg and Hey 19 by Steely Dan. He's played on albums with John Lennon, Aretha Franklin, Dolly Parton, James Taylor, Carly Simon, Warren Zevon, and on and on and on. Look him up. He also did the music for Everybody Loves Raymond. I met Rick when he played drums on my song, Something to Remember Me By, that I wrote for the film Three O'Clock High back in 1987. We became friends and he became my music producer. I learned more about music from that guy than from anyone else I've ever crossed paths with. So I gave Rick a call and asked what he was doing. Was he around? Could I stop by the studio and say hi? He was always in the studio. He told me, yeah, come by at 2 p.m. So that afternoon, I made my way from the marina toward North Hollywood. I worked with Rick from 1987 until I moved to Portland in 1993. We made a lot of music together. We did a lot of film and TV stuff and work with some other artists too. 
One of the first gigs we worked on together was with some 12-year-old actress who'd been in a couple of movies, and now her management wanted her to be a pop star. We were going to meet with her and see if we clicked. So this little squirt shows up at the studio with her mother, who was this intense Russian, full-blown stage mom. The girl was little Mila Jovovich. She came in, plopped onto the couch, let out a big sigh, and started biting her nails. Mila, don't bite nails, her mom said. Now Mila has gone on to accomplish great things. She's a terrific actress. I like those Resident Evil flicks. But at this moment, she was just a bored little insolent 12-year-old who clearly didn't want to be there. Rick asked her a bunch of questions about what kind of music project she might want to do. The questions were met with grunts or, I don't know, or her just staring into space. Finally, I asked her what her favorite band was. Then she kind of perked up. She was really into Cocktail Twins, Susie and the Banshees, Echo and the Bunnymen, all that goth and emo stuff. She got all animated and I got out my guitar and we ended up writing a song. It was actually really fun. After that initial awkwardness, she warmed up and we ended up cutting a bunch of tracks with her. The days we worked with Mila went like this. I'd pick her up from school at 3pm. She'd bum a smoke off me, tell me about her boy trouble. Then we'd go back to the studio to work until about 6 or 7 when her mom would show up to get her. Whenever Mila, or Mealy Mouth as we took to calling her to her face, didn't like the direction we were headed, Mila's mom would yell, Mila, do what Rick and Jim tell you. We worked with Mila for about a year. I listened to her troubles, we wrote lyrics together, and we spent a lot of time trying to put a project together that she was comfortable with. I'm not really sure what all happened, but her management started to get involved in the demos, and then some interested record companies started having opinions about how things ought to be. Always the death knell of art. And it all became kind of gross. After a while, she was talked into going with some other producers, and that was the last I ever saw of her. Until a couple of years later, I was walking into a movie premiere, one of my first dates with my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, Kim, and Mila was standing in the lobby by herself. Hey, Mila, how you doing? I said. She looked at me without a flicker of recognition. She looked like she'd been crying. One time, Rick and I were out to lunch at a cafe on Ventura Boulevard. One of these places where you don't go to eat, you go to be seen. Rick and I were waiting for a table. Everyone was looking at each other. Who's that? Is that anybody? He looks like somebody, but I don't know who. Hey, who are they? They look like somebody. Classic Hollywood hobnob and horse shit. Two guys walked in. Turned out Rick knew the older guy, and we decided to share a table. Rick and the manager guy sat across from each other and immediately started catching up. Me and the other guy who was silent and had a baseball cap and sunglasses on, just sat there across from each other. Finally, I said, hey, they're lost in their own world. I'm Jim Walker. The other guy said, oh, hey, I'm Richard, Richard Marks. And sure enough, it was that Richard Marks, who at the time had a couple of massive hits on the radio with Don't Mean Nothing. And that massive ballad right here waiting. His hair was tucked up into his cap, so I didn't recognize him. We ended up chit-chatting about everything under the sun, except music, which was kind of nice.
Another day, Rick and I were driving down Ventura Boulevard on our way to yet another lunch. In one of the many mini-mall parking lots, we saw a film crew all set up for a shoot. Gear everywhere. They had a cherry picker set up in the parking lot as well, and there was a guy with sunglasses up top in the bucket. We slowed to a red light and had a look. I said to Rick, Is that Tom Petty up there? Rick said, Oh yeah, sure is. A few months later, the Free Fallen video showed up on MTV. We got a little further down Ventura Boulevard, and suddenly Rick's left front tire blew. I should probably mention that Rick had a DeLorean. But this was five or six years after Back to the Future came out, and several years after John DeLorean was arrested for cocaine trafficking and his entire empire crumbled. So at that point, driving a DeLorean was more or less a punchline. God damn it, Rick hollered. He pulled the car over and got out. He opened the trunk and got the jack and spare and went to work on the car. Unfortunately, since it was the left tire, he was dangerously exposed to the passing cars. Jim, stand by the back of the car and wave traffic away so I don't get hit. I walked to the back of the DeLorean and frantically waved traffic away. Then I happened to look into the open trunk. Sitting there, amongst the junk, was a photograph. Not just any photograph. It was a promo photo of Rick that had been blown up poster size, about two feet wide and three feet long, and mounted on poster board. In the picture, Rick was maybe ten years younger, and he appeared to be sitting poolside somewhere on a chaise lounge. He was wearing sunglasses, had no shirt on, and had a big smile on his face. It was completely goofy, and I immediately understood why it was hidden in the trunk. So I took the poster out and held it above my head for the oncoming traffic to see. I pointed down at Rick, who was on his knees fixing the flat. People were laughing and honking going by. After a few minutes, Rick looked up and saw what I was doing, and he screamed, God damn it, put that back! He was really pissed. I still think it was my best prank ever. Another time, Rick and I were hired to create karaoke-type sound-alike tracks. We were recreating some of the day's current hits. I can't remember what the circumstances were or why we were doing this, but we were getting paid. The person paying us also wanted us to put all the background vocals on and just leave the lead vocal off. Rick said, I'll call my friend Katie. That afternoon, Katie showed up. And for the next four afternoons, she and I sang all the background parts for the tracks. She was super nice, super cute, sang great, and we laughed the whole time. After Katie left on the last day, Rick said to me, You don't even know who Katie is, do you? No, should I? I said. Yeah, she plays the mom on the number one show in the fucking world right now. Married with children. You heard of it? No, I said. That's because you're the only idiot in the world without a fucking TV set, he said. Anyway, that was how I met Katie Seagal. There was a guy named Richard Gibbs who had a studio in the house right next to Rick's. He came over one day and said he was in a bit of a bind. He'd been working on a TV show as music director, but he had a chance to score a movie. He was wondering if Rick could sub on the TV show for a few weeks while he got the bulk of the movie score together. Rick said, Sure, what's the show? And Richard said, The Tracy Ullman show. No one's watching it, it's not finding an audience, so it shouldn't be too much work. Richard left and Rick asked me if I'd want to help out with the show, so off we went. Even though the show was apparently failing to find an audience, it was fantastic. Everyone on it was really funny and really nice. The skits were hilarious, and it seemed like there was no character that Tracy Ullman couldn't do. One afternoon we were working away with the live band, and I looked up above the empty bleacher seats where the audience usually sat. That's where all the tech stuff happened, where the director's and producer's headquarters were. 
I noticed that behind the glass of one of the studio rooms up there, I could see cast members very animatedly recording something. Later on, we heard it was for some short little bumper cartoon bit for the last five minutes of that week's show. If I only knew at the time that I was watching the very first recording session of The Simpsons, I probably would have paid more attention. The Simpsons shorts completely took off and they started doing them every week. The Tracy Ullman show got a huge bump in the ratings because of it. Eventually, as we all know, The Simpsons branched out on their own, and the rest is TV history. So, there driving from the marina to Rick's studio, I've got these things going on in my head, thinking of all these stories that happened from knowing Rick. I pulled up to the studio, a nondescript little office building adjacent to a gas station. Years before, I'd helped Rick build the place. We drywalled, carpeted, insulated, painted, and I worked there with Rick for a few years before moving up north to Portland. I sat in front of the studio, kind of recalling all the music we made in that space. Suddenly, the door flew open, and Rick came out looking frantic. You couldn't have come at a worse time, he said. Why? What's up? I got Huey McCracken in here doing a session, and he's drunk, Rick said. I'd never met Hugh McCracken before but he's one of the most renowned session guitar players ever. Check out his playing on Hey 19 by Steely Dan. Drunk, I said. As a skunk, and he's sucking all over the place, Rick said. Should I leave, I said. Nah, come on in. Not exactly the normal visit I was hoping for. I walked into the studio and met Hugh. He nodded, slightly acknowledging my existence. He was sitting on the floor messing with the head of his amp. Rick, I think I got it, Hugh said. I'm not holding my breath, Huey, Rick said. No, no, I found it. It's this great setting on the amp. It's totally the Keith Richards sound. Check it out, Hugh said. Before he could play a note, Rick said, Huey, I don't want to hear you play with the Keith Richards sound. I don't even want to hear Keith Richards play with the Keith Richards sound. It's completely wrong for this tune. You're drunk, Rick yelled. I'm not that drunk, Ricky, Hugh said. I hung around for a little bit, but this was not going right. I was just in the way, so I bailed. What, you leaving already? Rick said. Yeah, you guys are working. I'm just in the way, I said. Rick said he'd give me a call. I left. I weaved down side streets near the 101. I decided to give John a call and let him know where I was. I was sitting in a light waiting to make a left turn when I spotted a payphone. Left turns are challenging in L.A. on the best day, and I don't like taking chances while driving, so I don't mind waiting for the perfect time to make the left turn, even if it pisses everyone off behind me. Fuck em. I like breathing. So I'm waiting at this light in the left turn lane. Across from me, also waiting to make a left turn, was a big moving truck. It was so big it was blocking my view of the two lanes of opposing traffic I was sitting waiting for. Cars were flying through the intersection super fast, so I just sat there, waiting for the proper moment to go. Suddenly, there was no traffic coming. It seemed open, but I couldn't see around the truck at what was coming, so I just waited. There was still no cars coming. That was when the moving truck flashed its lights at me, and the driver waved. To me, meaning the coast was clear? Still, was I to trust some random guy? He flashed his lights again, so I figured I'd ease out really slow into the left turn, being very, very cautious. And... Suddenly, a car going about 40 through the intersection took my front bumper clean off. When the car hit my bumper, the driver swerved out of panic. 
They slammed their brakes on, the car shimmied, and the driver lost control. The car crashed into another car, then hit the curb, crashed into a bus bench, spun again, and ended up facing the wrong way in the middle of the intersection. I jumped out of my car and ran up to the vehicle. There was a Latino woman behind the wheel. Her forehead was bloody and she was passed out. I leaned in to see if she was okay, and that's when a little Latino boy, I assume her son, popped up from the back seat and started screaming bloody fucking murder at the top of his lungs, and hey, wouldn't you too? He didn't seem hurt, just completely freaked out, and I had no idea what to do. People started honking at me to move my car out of the intersection. I jumped into my car, pulled it to the curb, and before I could even get back to the other car, the cops, fire department, and the ambulance had all shown up. This was all in the span of about four minutes. I gave the cops my statement. They rushed the woman and her son to the hospital, and I went back to my car and sat there shaking like a leaf for a half hour. Other than the bumper being gone, there wasn't a scratch on the car or on me, so I threw the bumper in the back seat and kept driving to the beach, completely forgetting to make my phone call to John. As I got onto Santa Monica Boulevard, I started to calm down. I thought to myself that I should let somebody know what had happened, but there really wasn't anybody to call. I didn't live here anymore. That was the moment that I actually realized it. I no longer lived here. I still wanted to tell John what was going on, though. Up ahead, I saw a payphone right in front of Barney's Beanery. I pulled over. Then, looking at the building, I had another memory. I'd played one night at a bar called Molly Malone's. Afterwards, a group of people headed over to Barney's for some late-night food. I was with Alice, who was my fiancé at the time. Her brother Phil was the director of the film Three O'Clock High, and had just finished directing the U2 documentary Rattle and Hum. There'd been an incident several days before. Alice and I were watching MTV when the VJ Kurt Loder came on with the news. He ran a clip from a U2 concert the previous night. Bono was standing on stage, and he suddenly gave a big congratulations to Phil Giovanno, the director of their film, as he had just eloped and gotten married in Vegas. Now, Alice and her brother Phil were very close. As far as we knew, Phil didn't even have a girlfriend. Now he's married? Alice went through the roof, completely pissed off that Phil had done this behind the family's back. I thought she was going to blow a gasket. About an hour later, the phone rang. I picked it up. It was Phil. Hey, Jim, is Alice there? Phil said. I held the phone out. It's Phil, I said. I don't want to talk to him, Alice said. Well, can you tell him that? Because I don't want to be in the middle of this, I said. No, tell him to fuck off, she said. Um, I heard her, Phil said. I'll try her later when she cools off. Phil must have called ten times, but Alice wouldn't talk to him. So, cut to several days later after the Molly Malone's gig, Alice and I and a group of our friends are sitting there at Barney's Beanery about to enjoy some food when two massive Harleys pull up outside the restaurant. We were sat right in the front window, so we couldn't miss it. The two bikers pulled off their helmets. It was Phil and the drummer for U2, Larry Mullen. Fuck, said Alice. Phil, still out on the sidewalk, looked up into the window and locked eyes with Alice. He pointed at her and headed inside looking furious. He came in and made a beeline for our table, Larry the drummer pulling up the rear. We need to talk, right now, he said. Alice just shook her head but squeezed out of the booth. The two of them went to the bar, leaving Larry standing there at our table. Hey, I'm Jim. Have a seat, I said. Thanks, said Larry. He sat. She's furious that Phil got married without telling her. Hopefully they'll straighten it out, I said. Yeah, I knew something was up. Phil hasn't been a happy camper, Larry said. So our group continued the conversation from before. 
We included Larry, but we didn't ask him about the band or treat him any differently than we would anyone else. He was a very, very nice fellow. After about an hour, Alice and Phil still hadn't returned. Larry ordered a potato dish, which he dug into with fervor. Irish. It was then completely unsolicited. Larry cleared his throat and said, We were playing tonight in San Diego. I didn't know whether the crowd wanted to canonize Bono or crucify him. It's really fucking weird being in this band. He held his fork and stared into the remnants of his spuds. Maybe because Larry had now opened the floodgates, one of the women at our table said, Larry, it's me, Marina. Remember I was shooting second unit on Rattle and Hum? Um, no, sorry, I don't recall, he said. No, remember when you guys were playing in Phoenix, and it was so hot, and you guys all wanted strawberry milkshakes, and we couldn't find anywhere that had strawberry milkshakes, and I, I finally found them at a drive through she said. Hmm, sorry, love, I don't remember, Larry said. No, no, so I went and got the strawberry milkshakes with the limo driver, um, and just as he was handing them to you guys, the cup holder broke and the milkshakes got all over the dressing room, she said, continuing to dig the hole ever deeper. I meet a lot of people, darling, Larry said. I apologize for not remembering. No, no, I picked you up from the hotel every day for like five days, and we had those talks about talismans and birdwatching, she said. This one could not take a hint. Mm, I'm trying to remember, Larry said. Just then, Alice and Phil came back to the table, thank God. Alice grabbed her stuff and said to me, We're leaving. I guess we're leaving, I said to everyone. Nice to meet you, Larry. Cheers, mate. So after shaking off that memory, I called John from the payphone and told him what had happened with the car. Take it really slow. Breathe. Take your time, and I'll see you when you get here, John said. I got back on Santa Monica Boulevard and headed toward the beach. An experience like a car crash gets you to thinking, you know? And boy, that's just what I did. I started thinking that if I really didn't live in L.A. any longer, then I better just set my sights and concentrate on the life I had created in Portland. Speaking of Portland, a couple of developments had occurred. One, Kim and I moved out of the freezing cold apartment in northwest Portland and moved into a rental house. The new place was just a little ways out of Portland, quiet, off the beaten path. It was Toki that told Kim and I about the place. He and nearly everyone he knew had lived there at one time or another. Everyone called it Little Pink House. And that's exactly what it was. A small pink house on two acres of land. The owner, Kyler, was and I'm assuming still is, a great guy. He rented the house for a reasonable price and was a good landlord. The only stipulation to all his goodwill was that he wanted to make sure that the lawn was always mowed and always taken care of. Sure, no prop, Kyler. Well, the thing about the Pacific Northwest is, summers are gorgeous, with warm temperatures ranging from the upper 70s into the low 90s. Once in a while you'll get a week where it gets over 100, but it passes and all is comfortable again. Early fall is delightful. The leaves turning, the air becoming crisp, the shadows growing shorter. Then, it rains from Halloween night until the 4th of July. I'm not kidding. There are variables in there, but that's basically the deal. It rains and rains and fucking rains. And that's why the summer and fall are so beautiful. So, when old Kyler mandated that the lawn be maintained, that meant mowing the lawn during the spring. A nearly impossible feat. 
You just can't drag a lawnmower through foot-long grass in the middle of a rainstorm. So you wait for a dry day. And it never comes. So you suit up and get out there and try your damnedest to mow. Now, the mower Kyler gave me to take care of these two acres was an antique. A piece of shit that gave out every ten feet. I learned a dozen tricks to start a dead mower during the two years Kim and I lived at Little Pink House. But still, I never had the whole two acres mowed at the same time. The whole sprawling yard always looked like a bad haircut. Small squares cut uniform, then chunks taken out all the way to the soil, interrupted by two-foot-long tall grasses that were never touched because the fucking mower conked out. That lawn was the bane of my existence. But all in all, Little Pink was a great place to live. The road to get to the house was unpaved and full of potholes. One rare sunny afternoon shortly after we moved in, there was a pounding at the front door. I opened it, and standing there was an old man holding two shovels. Time to fill the holes, he said. I stared at him. He handed me a shovel. I'm Bob. Let's go, he said. So I followed Bob out to the unpaved road. There were these giant piles of black stuff spaced about a hundred feet apart, all the way to the end of the road. What's that stuff, Bob? I asked. Old roofing material, shredded asphalt shingles, Bob said. That's what we fill the holes with. And I was suddenly tracking. We were going to fill up the potholes all over the road with this stuff. Just us doing this? I asked. Unless you see somebody else around, Bob said. And we spent the next three hours filling up the holes. When we finished, Bob said, Oh yeah, everyone on the road pitched in for the material. You owe me 30 bucks. I paid him and I don't believe I ever saw Bob again after that. Although I was playing with the Craig Crothers trio at this point, I also wanted to put together a band of my own. My old pal Mark, who designed my first album cover for Alexander's Dark Band, had a band with Toki on bass and another guy named Rick on drums. He asked me if I wanted to play with them. I figured it couldn't hurt. We practiced a bunch, I learned their set, and we did a couple of shows. But while I thought Mark's music was really cool, somewhere between grunge and metal, Gretel, I don't know, it wasn't really where I saw myself. So after a few months, I bailed out. I immediately got a call from Toki asking me if he could join my band. I told him I loved playing with him, but I just couldn't do that to Mark. He's a good friend, and I'd feel like a real heel poaching his band members. Toki said, well, either way, I'm quitting that band. I said, maybe we should give it a little grace period and see where we landed in a couple of months. Toki agreed. I set the phone down. It rang again. It was Rick the drummer. He wanted to join my band too. Uh Uh-oh. I told him the same thing I told Toki. You do whatever you were going to do in the first place. Leave me out of it, and we'll talk in a while and see how it shakes out. Both guys quit Mark's band. And in the interim, before we all three started playing together, something called band practice was born. Band practice had nothing to do with band practice. It was just an excuse on Thursdays for Toki to come over to Little Pink House, get drunk, and hang out. Damn, we laughed a lot. About this time I got a call from a local promoter guy I was working with. I'll call him Kelly. 
Kelly asked if I could put together a little trio to play a two-hour set at a local Sam Goody's record store on a Saturday afternoon. No drums, they wanted to keep it on the mellow side. I asked Toki if he wanted to do it. Of course he did. Since we needed one more guy, I asked my new guitar-playing bandmate in the Craig Crothers trio, Tim Ellis, if he wanted to play the gig with me. He agreed. So on that Saturday, we showed up at the record store. And here's something you should know about Tim right off the bat. Tim never, ever rehearsed. He'd just show up for a gig and play. In the past, I've met guys who claimed to be able to do this, just show up without knowing the material and play. These guys were always delusional about their abilities, and it was always, always, always a complete train wreck. But having played with Tim in the Crothers Band for a year or so, I knew that in Tim's case, it was absolutely true. The guy could show up not knowing any of the material, original songs, not cover tunes or anything, and play the gig as if he's always been in the band. And not just noodling and soloing over the changes. None of that garbage. He'd come up with, on the fly, amazing hooky, melodic parts that complemented the music so beautifully it would drop your jaw. So we're there at the Sam Goodies, and here comes Kelly the promoter, glad-handing all of us and saying what a great gig this was going to be, and boy, just think of the exposure we're going to get. I saw Tim roll his eyes, confirming what I was thinking. Kelly was completely full of shit. Whatever. It was a gig. Kelly had provided the PA system for the show, and he had this young girl of about 15 or 16 helping him load in the gear. He introduced us to her and told us that she was a member of the Job's Daughters. We nodded like we knew what that was. He said she helped him out at events and was learning live sound. Great, we said, not giving a fuck one way or the other. So Kelly and the Job's daughter set the gear up. A crowd gathered, we played, and it was super fun, especially having Tim there, adding all the things he was so great at. Having Tim on a gig was like turning a black and white photo into color, simple as that. We took a break, and Kelly approached us and said he needed to go, and would we be cool with breaking down the PA and dropping it off at his house when we were done? No problem. He wrote down his address for us. We finished the gig, packed up the gear, Tim left, and Toki and I headed to Kelly's to drop off the PA. We got to the address on the piece of paper. I jumped out and knocked on the front door. Nothing. I knocked again. Nothing. This was still before everybody had phones, so we couldn't contact Kelly. So we sat there for a few minutes waiting. Finally, Toki looked at me and said, I'm going to establish my own entrance. I didn't know what he was talking about. Then Toki started going around the house checking the doors and windows, and I'm thinking, no good can come of this. Finally, he tried a bathroom window on the side of the house, and what do you know, it opened. So what now, I said. I'll crawl in and open the front door, and we can just leave the shit in the front room, Toki said. I just stood there kind of shaking my head, but I was very impressed. Toki jumped up and began to crawl through the window. That was when the front door burst open, and there was Kelly, wearing nothing but a t-shirt and underwear. He was red in the face. What's going on? What are you guys doing? He yelled. I glanced over at Toki's ass, which was hanging halfway out of Kelly's bathroom window. Well, fuck, dude, you told us to drop the stuff off. What were we supposed to do? Where were you anyway? I was napping, he said. Just then, the Job's daughter appeared at the front door. Go back inside, Kelly said to her. Oh, okay, she said and disappeared back into the house. Oh, fucking gross, I thought. Toki's ass was still hanging out the bathroom window. Tope, forget it. Front door is open. We quickly loaded the gear into the house and went back to my car. I told him what had happened with the Job's daughter. What? Toki said. He's nailing the Job's daughter? Sure looks that way, I said. We drove in silence for a few minutes. When I got home, I was compelled to call Tim and tell him what was going on. Tim, who had five daughters, called the head of the company Kelly did promotion for, 
turned out Kelly had been creeping on several underage kids whose folks worked at the promotion company. He was arrested. A bunch of the kids who'd been victims of Kelly's came forward and testified against him, and he did about seven years. Too bad they didn't carve his nuts off. One day I got a call at the little pink house. Hello, I said. Hello, is this Jim? A voice said. Yes, I said. Hi, this is Gino Vanelli. Now, if you don't know who Gino is, he's a very talented singer-songwriter who had a monster hit back in the 70s with a song called I Just Want to Stop. This call was strange because I don't know Gino Vanelli, or have any mutual friends who know Gino Vanelli, so I was a bit taken aback. Why was Gino Vanelli calling me? Incidentally, even though I thought it was odd he was calling me, I never doubted for an instant that it was actually Gino Vanelli on the phone, because who would call pretending to be Gino Vanelli? Hi, how are you, Gino? I said. Turned out, Gino lived in Portland and had a studio in Northwest. He said he'd heard I could sing through the Portland grapevine. He was cutting tracks for a new record, and he wanted to know if I would come and sing backup on the chorus to a song he was working on. Sure, I said. I showed up on the day of the session a few minutes before my 11 a.m. call time. Gino came to the door, introduced himself, and we got right to work. His studio was absolutely dialed. All the recording equipment was completely state-of-the-art, and all the mics and preamps and all that stuff were absolutely top of the line. Gino said he wanted to try he and I singing together on the chorus, the two of us singing the same part in unison. Then after we got one he liked, we'd try a harmony part, again the two of us in unison. Then the two of us would add a third part so it sounded like more people than just the two of us. Sounds good, I said. There was a sound engineer behind the glass of the control room, a very nice fella called Doug. Aside from Doug, it was just Gino and I in the studio. Gino went to the piano and played the notes he wanted me to sing three notes that repeated a couple of times. He wanted us to sing the notes as ah, super simple stuff. This wouldn't take long. I was already planning out the rest of my afternoon in my head when Gino said, okay, let's try one. Gino and I stood across from each other in front of these two beautiful gold microphones. Okay, this is take one, said Doug on the talkback. We sang the three note part. Gino waved at Doug to stop recording. Doug stopped tape. Can we hear that back, Doug? Gino said. Sure, Doug said. He played it back. It sounded beautiful. Gino waved at Doug to stop playback. Gino stared at the ground for a few moments. Let's do another one, he said. Okay, I said. We did another take and listened to playback. This one sounded great as well. Gino stared at the floor. Hmm. He paced around a little. Let's do one more, he said. To make a long story short, I was there working on that one chorus to that one song from 11 a.m. until 10.30 that night. Yeah. After the third take, I was convinced I was doing something wrong, so I asked Gino what I was screwing up. He said, no, 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 you sound terrific. I'm just looking for the one, trying to capture that lightning in a bottle, he said. I figured, okay, this guy's just an absolute perfectionist, like the guys from Steely Dan or something. You just drill down on the thing until you get it exactly how you want it. And that's what we did. 
At around 6.30 that night, my stomach started audibly growling. You could start to hear it on the takes. Gino asked if I was hungry. I could eat a truck, man. I didn't know we were going to be here this long, I said. Oh, um, there's a Thai place next door that's really good. Should we break and get some food, he said. That'd be great, I said. Unfortunately, I don't have any money on me. I walked out the door with nothing, thinking I'd be home in an hour. Can you spot me and I'll pay you back, I asked. Now, had I been running this session and putting someone to work like that for seven and a half hours, I would have just taken the person to dinner, my treat, and not thought about it twice. That's just me. Gino, however, looked slightly upset at this. Oh, you don't have any money, he said. Well, I can just pay for you and then take it out of what I pay you for the session. That work, he asked. What a cheap mother... Sure, however you want to work it, I said. Anyway, with the dinner break subtracted, I was there for ten and a half hours. I didn't know what Gino was paying, but I was used to doing sessions for about 150 bucks per hour. So I didn't know if I'd be getting that, but hopefully it would be in that ballpark. We finished up, and as I was leaving, Gino said, So, can you just mail me an invoice for this? Uh, sure. How much should I make the invoice for? I asked. Uh, how about a hundred dollars? Minus the 1975 for dinner, of course. That work? He asked. It absolutely did not work. It was so out of line and insulting I didn't even know where to begin. I've been in situations like this in the past, and what I want to do is tell the other person in no uncertain terms that they are completely fucked and should go die. But what I did then is what I've done each time I'm treated unfairly. I just accept it and decide at that moment I will never ever work with that person again and then mercilessly talk shit about them for the rest of my life. The need for discipline. At this point, I was still playing keyboards in the Craig Crothers trio. Craig was, and is, a great songwriter, and to me, that was the best part of the gig, being a sideman for someone who could really write songs. You don't meet them that often. I learned a ton in that band about what to play, what not to play, when to play like a maniac, and when to shut up. That's probably the most important skill a musician can learn in my humble opinion. Just don't play here. Wait, you mean just play a little bit? No, don't play at all. Nothing. So, like, just block chords? No, listen to me. Nothing. Nothing. Right. Silence. Nothing. Why? Because this section doesn't need anything. Well, then what am I supposed to do during this part? Just shut the fuck up. I got another call around this time from an old friend from high school, John Shogren. He was making these low-budget indie films and wanted to know if I wanted to try scoring one. I would have loved to, but I just didn't have enough gear at the time to make it happen. So I turned John down. I mentioned this to Craig Crothers the next day, and he said, Well, I have all that gear. Call him back and we'll score it together. So I called John back, and that's how Craig and I ended up scoring a film called Redline, a fun, action-packed deal full of car crashes and several tits. Craig and I not only scored this thing, but songs from our various albums are featured throughout the film. It was a blast, and we still get residuals. Eight bucks is eight bucks, man. Probably the most interesting thing about the film is the cast. Steve McQueen's son Chad, driving a green Mustang like his dad did in Bullet. Dom DeLuise, uh, what the fuck? Michael Madsen, somebody must have knew somebody. Corey Feldman, again, what the fuck? And a cameo from the hedgehog himself, Ron Jeremy. I guess Ron rented the production some gear and he asked if he could be in it. And finally, Jan Michael Vincent as the bad guy. A couple days before shooting began, 
Jan Michael, who had something of a legendary booze problem, was involved in a car crash where his face went through the windshield. When Jan Michael's people called to tell John, the director, what happened, John just assumed that Jan Michael was now out of the film since he was injured. Oh no, he still wanted to do it. So they quickly wrote into the plot that his character had been the target of an unsuccessful assassination attempt where he was blown up by a bomb, but still alive. Nice save. So, in all of Jan Michael's scenes, he's covered with stitches, scrapes, and scratches, and it's not makeup. It's crazy. See this movie if you get a chance. When I first met Craig Crothers and Tim Ellis, they were playing a weekly gig at a Lebanese restaurant in downtown Portland called Alamir. Sounds kind of funny, playing in a Lebanese restaurant, but this place was terrific. Really wild, and all about the party. Late night, this place turned into way more of a nightclub. When the trio's old keyboardist moved to Nashville to play with Leon Russell, I started playing the gig with Craig and Tim. Alamir had a tall stage, dead center in the main dining room, so the focus was completely on the music. And the owners, Joseph and Lydia, loved music. We played from 9 p.m. to 1 a.m. Fridays and Saturdays. That gig was about the most educational experience I'd had in my life to that point. Not just musically, but learning about how the restaurant business works, and about how to deal with people who've had too much to drink, and how to deal with people who request stupid songs that you'd never fucking play, and how to deal with people who get mad at you because you're not going to fucking play the stupid song they requested, and they get booze aggro and they want to fight you. And I learned how to calm that shit down. I also learned about marketing. Putting my first email newsletter together was huge at the time. How to negotiate money for gigs, and a bunch of other firsts for me. I was also learning about drinking. I mean, I knew how to drink, no problem, but this was my first time being in a band that was being sent a constant flow of drinks from the start of the set till the end, and I had to learn the hard way when to stop. In the past, I'd drink a little at gigs, but not in excess. You gotta load in, you gotta play, you gotta load out, you gotta drive home. You can't do it hammered. Just before the first gig I played with Craig and Tim, Craig said, I'm gonna go to the bar, what are you drinking? I said, I'm just like an O'Doul's non-alcoholic beer. Craig said, what? Fuck off. And when he came back, he was carrying three Spanish coffees. I'd never heard of a Spanish coffee before. But here's how you make one. Direct from the bartender at Alamir, Sammy. Three quarters of the shot of 151 rum, starting with two shots of Kahlua and a splash of triple sec. You know, go slightly, add some coffee, then splash of cream with some nutmeg and cinnamon. Don't burn yourself. These things were completely toxic. One's too many and three's not enough. They were always a mistake, and we made it weekly. In the next five years, I would drink a river of not only Spanish coffees, or Spaniards as we called them, but also margaritas, wine, grenades, that's Bailey's in a Kahlua mix, gross, Cape Cods, Cuba Libres, Singapore Slings, IPAs, vodka tonics, PBRs, Ovaltines, and so many others that scalded and vipered through my system for the duration of my tenure in that band. Right here and now, I would publicly like to take full responsibility for my own alcoholic actions and blame it all on Crothers and Ellis. I was much younger than those guys and very impressionable. They should have looked out for me. I was such a very nice boy, and they corrupted me. The shows at Alamir were pretty wild. I remember one night we were playing along, Spaniards were flowing, all three of us were tanked, but we were sounding really great. I know that sounds like bullshit. Everyone thinks they sound just fine when they're playing under the influence. But the Crothers trio really was improved by the booze. On this night, a really nice, sweet couple that were friends of the band came in. They waved to us, happy to be there, and we waved back. 
They seemed and looked to be stone cold sober. But after being there for about 20 minutes, the female of the group stood up, turned her head, and projectile vomited about three feet to her right. Then she collapsed onto the floor. Her male counterpart was so drunk he couldn't even get out of his chair to help her. He just stared at her on the floor there, and lolled around in his chair and watched the busboys clean her up and take her outside for air. I realized while watching that whole scene go on that I myself was pretty well pixelated. I said to Tim, Man, I'm fucking wrecked. I must have had four of those goddamn Spaniards. Tim looked at me. I just finished my fifth, he said. Just then, Sammy the bartender delivered us a tray of fresh Spaniards. I declined mine. Tim and Craig dug into theirs. Tim looked at me. Here goes nothing. And he gulped the whole thing down. I said to Craig, how many have you had? This is my seventh, he said. Dear God, I was nearly dead from four. After the gig, we were starting to pack up when Craig turned and quickly went outside. He spent the next hour hurling all over the parking lot. Luckily, he had a van, so he just climbed in the back and slept it off, leaving Tim and I to finish packing his gear up. Tim and I were outside saying goodbye, and I couldn't see straight. Tim, on the other hand, was completely fine. He was actually going home to finish recording some music he was doing for the TV show Frontline. I gotta get it done by tomorrow morning. Off to work, he said. Man, that dude is hardcore, I thought. I really didn't know the half of it at the time. I walked up to my car and tried to put the key in the door. I kept missing the lock and I realized there was no way I could drive. So I put my gear in the trunk, locked it up, and went and got a bottle of water at the convenience store. Then I wandered around downtown with the crazy homeless people and the other pathetic drunks until about 5 a.m. when I was not sober, but sober enough to drag my ass home. Another night at Alamere ended up one of the most fortuitous nights of my life, and it was all due to a middle finger. The trio was playing along, it was almost the end of the night. A group of maybe seven people came in. We knew one of the guys, a great guy named Jeff. He sat down at the table and gave us a wave. His middle finger was in a splint, giving the impression he was flipping the bird to us. He smiled and pointed at his finger like, how do you like this? And we all laughed knowing we were going to hear a good story at some point. Jeff's group was pretty well lubricated. We finished whatever song we were playing and Jeff said, Hey Craig, I know you really don't like playing requests, but is there any way you could do Angels Never Fall in Love? My friends haven't heard it. Craig said, Sure, we can do that one. Jeff placed his elbow on the table. With his finger splinted like that, it basically looked like he was telling the band to fuck off. It was actually really funny. Craig started the song. A beautiful, soft ballad. The room was very, very quiet. Everyone was listening intently. Great audience. The opening guitar chords chimed along while Tim played a gorgeous, almost birds-like descending melody line. That was when Jeff, middle finger still in the air, said to his table, Okay, you guys, check this song out. It's awesome. This is my favorite song of Craig's. I could see Craig bristling a bit at this, but he kept playing the intro. Jeff continued, Wait till you hear the lyrics. Amazing lyrics. Just sit back and check this out. Craig suddenly stopped playing and spoke into the mic. You know, Jeff, it is customary when one makes a request to actually listen to the song. Jeff laughed and said, Whoa, hey, temperamental artist. Hey, loudmouth patron, Craig said. Then Craig stood up, took off his guitar, picked up his wallet and keys, and walked straight out the front door. His van was parked near the front, and Tim and I, and the entire contents of the audience, watched as Craig climbed in and drove away. Jeff said, what's his problem? Jesus. 
and went right back to talking to his friends. Tim looked at me and said, grab Craig's guitar and let's finish out the set. We played for about 20 more minutes until closing. As dumb as it sounds, it was like a lightning bolt. It's the most fun I've ever had playing music in my entire life. A total revelation. The two of us seemed to know exactly what the other was thinking. Shortly after that, Craig got a publishing deal and decided to give Nashville a shot. He moved away, leaving a question mark over what was to become of the trio. Joseph, the owner of Alamir, called us and said, So do you guys want to just continue as Tim and Jim? That may have been the first time anyone referred to the two of us as Tim and Jim, and it stuck, and that's what we called ourselves for the next 16 years. There was this overlap before Craig moved, where we were still doing trio gigs, but Tim and I had started doing duo shows together as well. And this didn't sit right with Craig, who thought we were watering down the trio audience. Like making the audience have to decide which group to spend their time and money on. But that point didn't really carry much weight, and Tim and I just started gigging constantly. One of the last gigs we did as a trio was a wedding, and it was where the trio and the duo finally actually did collide. This wedding was being held in Washington State on Orcas Island in the San Juans. You're in Washington when you get there, but you can throw a rock and hit Victoria in Canada, so it was a bit of a hike from Portland. The other tricky bit is that you have to take the ferry over to the San Juans. The ferry only leaves a few times a day, so if you miss it, too bad. So let me explain how this gig went. On a Friday morning, I got up around 7, went about my day, and then that night Tim and I played at Alamir from 9pm until 1am. At that point, we both went back to our respective homes, drunk of course, Spanish coffees, and then I packed my keyboards and all my other gear and went and picked up Tim around 2.30am so we could get to Washington before the ferry left at 9am. If we missed it, there wasn't another until 2pm and we wouldn't make it to the wedding on time. It was about six hours to get to the ferry from Portland, so we had about a half hour of wiggle in there. We were, as usual, cutting it kind of tight. Which reminds me of one of my favorite lines of Tim's. Once we were playing an afternoon outdoor show that we needed to be at by 3.45 p.m. for a sound check before the downbeat, which was at 4 p.m. As soon as we got in the car, there was traffic. It became 3.15, 3.30, then 3.40, and we were still a half hour away. My anxiety was off the chart as I hate being late to things. At 3.55, traffic was still dead stopped, and we weren't going to make it. I looked at Tim and I said, what do we do? He said, nothing. We're not late yet. An eternal optimist, that one. So, back to this wedding. Tim and I drove like the wind north on I-5, but even with the briefest stops for food and bathroom breaks, we are still running a little late for my taste. We pulled up to the ferry at 8.50 a.m., 10 minutes before the damn thing left. We had prepaid tickets, so we drove right on board. The ferry took about an hour and 15 minutes, and as soon as we locked the car up and went onto the main observation deck, Tim sat down and fell fast asleep. He could always do that. That's a talent I wish I had. I just don't. So I stayed awake. At this point, I'd been up for about 26 hours. Just before we docked, Tim woke up. We drove on to Orcas Island, found Craig and his lovely wife Kathy, and had a quick lunch with them. They had wisely driven up the day before and treated it like a working vacation. They were relaxed and ready to go. Tim and I looked like mental patients, bags under our eyes, completely fried. We set up and played the gig. I have no memory of it whatsoever. Then the moment we were done, Tim and I had to pack up all the gear and race to the ferry before the last one of the day left at 9.30pm. 
At this point, I'd been up for 38 and a half hours. Craig just shook his head at the two of us. And rightly so. Idiots. Tim and I once again just made it to the ferry. We got aboard. Tim went right to sleep. I tried, but it was useless. I was too wired, thinking, how am I going to stay awake and alert for that six-hour drive home? We docked, and I started driving. And Tim fell right to sleep. If you've never driven I-5 between, say, Seattle and Portland, believe me, it's truly one of the most boring drives available. It's a near-complete straight shot for hours. And at night, of course, you can't look at the scenery, so there's not much to do. Just about the time we got to Olympia, I was fading out, with Tim happily snoring away next to me. That was when I saw them. A group of several deer, painted day-glow green, running across the freeway. I hit the brakes and watched as other cars passed right through them as they hoofed across the highway. They weren't really there. It was a sleep-dep hallucination. Tim woke up. What's going on? I nearly just killed us, that's what. You're driving, I said. We swapped out and Tim drove the remaining few hours back to Portland, but I still couldn't sleep. I finally climbed into my own bed around 7.30 a.m. Sunday morning, 48 and a half hours after waking up the previous Friday. I called Tim later and said, thanks for driving. I walked into the house and conked out for about 10 hours. How about you? Nah. Matter of fact, I got home and climbed into bed with Susie and got into a full tilt deal. Too much info, brother. Around this time, mid-90s, a whole slew of my friends from L.A. decided to move to Portland. There was Eric and Brock and Bill and Lucy and Brian and his wife at the time, Bonna. I guess I just couldn't live without us. Kim and I took Brock in for a while while he searched for a place of his own. Brian and Bonna bought a place and took in Eric. Brock was a guy I met down in L.A. at Conway Recording Studio when I was down there doing demos for a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles project. Conway was a huge studio in L.A. at the time. My friend Bryant worked there and had recorded Poison, Billy Idol, Johnny Mathis, Ted Nugent, and a whole bunch of others. So we're at Conway working on the Turtles stuff, and I took a break, walked out of the studio, and into this place they called The House, where the kitchen, bathrooms, and main offices were. I was moving quickly, and when I got to the house, I opened the door fast and smashed right into a guy who was coming out as I was coming in. I looked up and it was Steven Adler from Guns N' Roses. Since the guy weighed next to nothing, I nearly knocked him straight onto his bony ass. Oh, hey, sorry, man, I said. Fuck, dude, watch out, he said, more startled than pissed. I walked down the hall toward the bathroom and suddenly heard this weird giggling. I looked into a room that was sort of a hangout room like a den. And there sitting on the floor, crisscross applesauce, was this guy with his back to me. He was wearing headphones and giggling to himself. I watched him for a minute, and then he just busted out laughing altogether. I thought maybe he was listening to the new Sam Kennison album or something. He must have sensed my presence because he turned toward me. It was Brock, who'd been helping out on the turtle session, but really hadn't said two words. He looked up at me, took off the phones, and said, Man, have you heard this guy? Brazilian dude named Tom Z? No, who is he? I said, sitting down. Brock handed me the phones. He's like the Brazilian Frank Zappa. Really cool. He was right. It was. And we started talking music. It turned out we had nearly identical taste in music, but listened to completely different bands. You heard of this? No. Have you heard this? No. What is it? Brock was great. We became fast friends, and he ended up working at the record plant right around the corner from Conway. 
He brought my band in on a Sunday one time, and we got to record in that amazing place for free. I wonder what the hell ever happened to those tapes. I have no idea. So now, a few years later, here in Portland, Brock is our roomie. He's a good guy to live with, very helpful and kept to himself mostly, so that was fine. One of the things Brock did right off the bat was to scope out all the recording studios in Portland and try to meet as many people as he could. We'd heard that just a little outside of Portland, there was a studio in a place called Savi Island, which is a gorgeous island about the same size as Manhattan, right on the Columbia River. Not too many people lived out there, farmers and fishermen mostly. So we found the idea of a studio out there a little intriguing. Brock and I did some research and found that not only was there a studio out there, there was an indie label connected to it called Poundhouse. Brock called the guy who owned the place, Sandy Bodecker, and in just a few minutes got the entire skinny about the place from him. Sandy wasn't a musician. He worked for Nike in the soccer department, but he absolutely loved music with every fiber of his being and decided to take the bottom floor of his house and turn it into a studio. Sandy had some Nike dough, so he bought a bunch of great gear, including the old Harrison console that Nirvana recorded the Bleach album on, and started having bands come out to record. This went on for several years, but the biggest problem Sandy had was securing a full-time engineer-slash-producer who was knowledgeable and could really get terrific sounds. Brock told Sandy he'd been working in L.A. at the record plant in Conway. Sandy said that because he was working for Nike Soccer, he was very rarely in Portland, and he'd been looking for someone like Brock who could run the day-to-day of the studio. So, after a five-minute conversation, Brock was basically handed the studio. Sandy told him, Keys under the mat, go for it. And that was that. Brock now had a studio, and no music to record. I had music to record, but no studio. So off to Poundhouse, we went. Brock and I went out to Soviet Island a couple days later. Sandy had gone to South America to do Nike stuff, and the key was indeed under the mat. Poundhouse Studio was the entire bottom floor of a beautiful house right on the river. We opened up the door into a large tracking room, which was big enough to accommodate a decent-sized band. There was a control room with the Nirvana console. There was a mic locker filled with every mic you craved, an ISO booth for vocals, and a kitchen and a bathroom. Not bad for Brock's five-minute phone call. I'd been working on demos for a stack of songs. I asked Toki and Rick, the drummer we'd been playing with, if they wanted to go out to the island and record. Of course they did. We went in and cut the basic tracks live as a trio, then did vocals and any overdubs we could think of. I think we had five or six songs we worked on. It was going great. Easy sessions, great vibe, everything's sounding fantastic. And then, on one of the overdub days, Rick the drummer brought his girlfriend out to the studio. Very nice woman, at first. Then, after being there for a bit, she began to tell us all of her opinions about the music. What was good, what was bad, her ideas for the mixes, and like that. There's a thing called studio etiquette. Mostly what studio etiquette is, is knowing when to shut the fuck up. Which, if you're not directly involved in the project, is always. Always shut the fuck up. Well, Janine, as we took to calling her after the Big Mouth Budinsky girlfriend character in Spinal Tap, just couldn't stop herself. 
There was an infamous story back when I lived in L.A. that had to do with my friend and producer at the time, Rick Morata. He was producing an album for a fantastic guitar player named Farid Haq. On the first day of the session, Farid was out in the tracking room warming up. A friend of mine, Dave Mitchell, who was the engineer, was out there too, setting up mics. The session was just barely getting started. The mics hadn't been plugged in yet, and there was no sound coming from anything. Rick Murata was in the control room, as was Farid's girlfriend, who was sitting on the couch. Suddenly the girlfriend said, I can't hear Farid's guitar. It needs to be turned up. It needs to be louder. Rick walked up to the talkback button so everyone could hear him, pushed it down and said, The date is over. He walked out of the studio, got in his DeLorean, and went home. No one could believe it. Farid freaked out and called Rick, begged him to come back. After a few days, Rick agreed to come back as long as the girlfriend never returned. This story got all around L.A. at the time. It got to the point where if there was some absolutely minor problem on a session, someone would jokingly get on the talkback and say, The date is over. A few months later, Dave Mitchell was at A&M Studios. Some small thing happened, and one of the assistant engineers yelled, The date is over. Dave asked the assistant where he'd heard that. The guy said he had no idea where it started, but everyone else was doing it, so... And I remembered that story, there at Pound House, listening to Janine run her fucking mouth. I turned and asked her, as politely as I could, to please leave. This didn't sit well with her, or the drummer, and I was suddenly some kind of Nazi. They both got mad and yelled at me, and I just sat there staring at them while they got it out of their system. Then they left. A couple days later, Rick quit my band. Probably for the best. He's a great guy, but not the right fit. Many years later, Rick was in a boat out on the Columbia River with his six-year-old daughter when he suddenly clutched his chest and dropped dead. His daughter was waving her arms at the other boats trying to get help, but it took a while because everyone was smiling and waving back at the friendly little kid. Yikes. But all that was in the future. Right now, Brock and I had about a half an album and no drummer. So I started calling my favorite players in town to come out and finish the record. I called my drummer friend Greg Williams, who was playing with Cheryl Crow, and my other drummer friend, Mike Braun, who played on my all-time favorite Graham Parker album, Another Gray Area. Quick aside, because I'm a fanboy, I once asked Mike about playing with Graham on that record. His response, couldn't stand those songs then, I can't stand them now. People from New Jersey will always give it to you straight. I also called keyboard players, background singers, another bass player to do some stylistic things that weren't really in Toki's wheelhouse, Fretless bass being one of them. When I asked Toki to play fretless, he just laughed and said, What, like Jocko Pistorius? Fuck him. Jocko? Shitto. And that's why I love Toki. Brock did an amazing job producing the album, which ended up being called Today Was Different, after the name of the spoken word story that closes the album. I think one of my strongest memories of making that album was on a song called Love You Still. I wrote it about the serial killer, Ed Gein. It's kind of a weird song, and we were looking for weird sounds. We ended up running a microphone cable outside and recorded me dragging a giant iron boat anchor that happened to be sitting in the yard all around the gravel for the duration of the song. It really gave it an otherworldly and creepy vibe. On another song called If You Want That Coat, we had Greg Williams and Mike Braun both cut drums on the track, independent of each other. They had no idea that the other had played on the track. Once we had both drummers recorded, 
We put up all the drum tracks together on the console, and it sounded astonishing, like a drum army. It sounded like both drummers were in the same room, looking at each other and playing off of each other. Just another bit of wonderful studio trickery. After Brock mixed the album, we had it mastered down at Capitol by veteran mastering engineer Ron McMaster. He came back from Ron, and when we listened to playback, we were just blown out of our chairs. That was really great work with a great bunch of people, weird moments of awkwardness notwithstanding. Just a very satisfying project. Now Toki, who was at the time a designer at Nike, had an idea for the CD cover. Instead of a regular plastic jewel case, he wanted to have a cardboard cover with a sticker on it held together with a rubber band. Inside would be a booklet that was glued onto the cardboard. The whole thing would have this industrial, homemade look. Really unique. I love the idea. One problem we ran into was that there was no good way for the rubber band to stay wrapped around the cardboard without it flying off. So the solution was to have the company who cut all the cardboard pieces do a small, notched die cut on each cardboard piece. That little die cut ended up costing me about 400 bucks. Oh well. Money is temporary. Art is forever or something like that. After we had all the pieces for this CD cover, a group of us got together at Kim and my apartment one afternoon. I think there were about 10 of us, and the plan was to spend the day assembling the CDs, putting them all together one at a time. Our goal was to do a thousand that day. Each person had a job. One would put glue on the inside of the cardboard, one would stick the booklet in, someone else put the stickers on the front and back, another put the rubber band on. We worked for the whole day, and when it was time to knock off, we had 230 finished. We bit off a little more than we could chew. In the future, I'd sit by myself, assembling 20 or 30 at a time, glue all over everything, cursing Toki's fucking name for coming up with such a cockamamie idea in the first place. Meanwhile, Sandy, who owned Poundhouse Studio, had spent a bunch of time in Australia and had met, courted, fallen in love with, and married the Olympic runner, Kathy Freeman. He decided to stay with her and live in Australia, so he called Brock and asked him if he'd like to live in the house. That way, Sandy would have his house taken care of, and Brock would have the run of the studio. All Brock had to pay for was his food and the phone bill. It took Brock about a second and a half to say yes, and presto, we now had Pound House 24 hours a day if we wanted. And we wanted. We went right back to work on a new album. I was thinking about all this, all this stuff, all these memories, as I drove on Santa Monica back to John's place in Marina del Rey. It was all just drifting around my mind, free-floating, as I calmed down after my car accident. I finally got back to John's. He was waiting outside with a cocktail. He handed it to me. He said, drink that real fast and come with me. I slammed it and we jumped into John's car. Where are we going? I asked. Surprise, John said. A few minutes later, we pulled up to a dock at the marina and parked. John said, We're going to be in a regatta. A what? I asked. Boat race. My friend Alan is the captain of a sailboat that's competing. I'm crewing. You can just kick back, relax, and enjoy it, John said. I really had no idea what to make of that. I know bupkis about boats, and I really didn't feel up to dealing with all the excitement of a race. 
I kind of just wanted three more of those cocktails and a small square of sand I could watch the sunset on. But I went along. At the end of the dock was a beautiful sailboat. At least as far as I could tell. What did I know? And there was a guy barking orders to a few other guys. We approached. Captain, permission to board, John said. The captain turned. Hey, John, hop on. He looked at me. Who's this? He asked. This is my friend Jim. He's just going to hang out on board if that's all right, John said. Well, Jim, you're welcome on board, but nobody's hanging out. You're working if you're on this vessel, said the captain. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it, I said. That's the spirit, he said. And that's how I found myself, ten minutes later, wearing a life jacket, zipping through the marina on a sailboat that was so far sideways I could skim the water with my palm. There were twenty boats insanely close to us, people screaming everywhere, boat horns blaring, and me, cranking with both hands on some piece of gear that held a rope connected to a sail. I'm sorry, I don't know my nautical terms. But I'd crank on this fucking thing fast as I could, and someone would yell, Come about! And a giant sail would suddenly fly at your head, and if you didn't duck, you were going to take the entire weight of the damn thing square in the mouth. Crank, crank, crank. Come about? Everyone ducks, and you hear that sail whistle past your head as it flies by. And then crank, 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 and I just kept going. Kept it going. Kept the momentum going. Quite possibly the most exhilarating thing I'd ever done in my life. Better yet, I'd completely forgotten all about the accident. And forgotten about everything else as well. There was only this. This boat. This crew, the sea, and that bloody red California sun sinking into the west. There was just this moment. Just this moment. And guess what? Our boat won. Got out of town on a boat on the southern island. Sailing a reach for a following sea. She was making for the trades.